All right, Alexander, let's do a video focusing on an article that came out from the Washington Post the other day. And the title of this article is U.S. Doubts Ukraine Counteroffensive Will Yield Big Gains, Leaked Document Says. So obviously, this uh, Washington Post article draws on the leaked documents that we discussed in a video that we published the other day. What are your thoughts on this article? Because I found this to be quite an incredible article from the Washington Post confirming much of our analysis. And you'll explain why it confirms much of our analysis. But I mean, it was, it was an incredible article from the Washington Post. It is an incredible article, and can I say it does confirm our analysis. We have an exhausted Ukrainian army, that's absolutely clear. The men are tired, the officers are tired. Many of the best soldiers, as we know, have been killed. Many of the best officers have been killed or wounded. It's short of ammunition, it's short of equipment, it doesn't have air support. It's up against a Russian army that's largely fresh, We've discussed many times in many videos that the reserve forces that were called up in September last year have just completed their training. They've never been committed into battle by the Russians. So they have at least 160,000 men ready to fight who've never been committed to fight up till now. Probably much more than that, by the way. The Russians outnumber the Ukrainians in tanks, machines, everything you can possibly imagine. And they built up these enormous fortifications that we know about in Kherson region, in Zaporozhye region, in Svatovo, Kremena, yeah, wherever. So we've always said that this looked like a very problematic offensive. Now we learn from the Washington Post that U.S. intelligence is briefing the Pentagon, and this looks like this was a briefing sent to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's been briefing the Pentagon about the same thing. They're saying if Ukraine goes ahead with this offensive, it will suffer heavy losses, it's unlikely to gain much ground, it's unlikely to break the land bridge to Crimea. It all looks incredibly problematic, and apparently the Pentagon was so concerned that somebody in the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided that they would have some kind of a meeting with the Ukrainians in mid-March to actually look over and see whether Ukraine's plans match its capabilities. I mean, this is what we're now getting from all of these various sources. And, you know, the Washington Post has summarised them. So a very problematic offensive indeed. All of this published just before this offensive takes place, and diametrically contrary to what Secretary of State Blinken is saying, you know, that Ukraine has all the means to carry out an offensive with every prospect of success, the comments that we've been getting from General Austin, which have been of the same kind, you know, everything is, all is well, Ukraine has all the prospects of succeeding. Clearly there are some people in the Pentagon, in the intelligence community, who think otherwise. And but bear in mind that this comes from, this is an assessment apparently produced by the CIA, by the National Intelligence Council. This appears to have the entire US intelligence community behind it. Now, if you go back a couple of months, 
at the time when that Rand Corporation study was published. You remember that? We were saying, we did several programs about this, and we were saying at the time that it looked like there was an argument going on, a power struggle going on in Washington between the neocons entrenched in the National Security Council and in the White House, led by people like Blinken, led by people like Newland, Sullivan, and indeed Austin, and it must be said, including the president himself, and more level-headed people in the Pentagon, briefing the Joint Chiefs of Staff, briefing Milley, and it seems many of these papers, as I said, were prepared for Milley himself, and there are rumours that it was Milley who ordered, who commissioned that Rand Corporation study. So we see that the other side now, the, the, the neocons have managed to push Ukraine into this offensive. The other side, the more level-headed people, the uniformed military, the more level-headed people in the intelligence community, have been advising against this, and someone, and I'm sure this has been from that particular side, the uniformed military side, they've now come out, they've published these documents to do one of two things, either to try to stop this counteroffensive, which, frankly, I think it's too late for that, or, more plausibly, to place distance between themselves and the um, eventual failure um, of the counteroffensive when it happens. They'll be able to come out and say, look, we told you so. We briefed you. We said in private and in public, that was the Rand Corporation study, that this counteroffensive was not a success. We were suggesting negotiations back in January. We weren't listened to. If it all ends in disaster, it's nothing to do with us. So this is what this is all about, in my opinion. This leak, I mean, I was clearly wrong when I thought in my programmes that this is a Russian origin. It's clearly an American leak, and it is an expression. It is a result of this argument, this conflict that's been going on for months now at the heart of the American government. Yeah, I was going to ask you the question, do you believe that this leak was was done by some sort of intel official or someone at the Pentagon in order to, to warn against this counteroffensive, or as you said, create distance between between them and and the State Department, the Jake Sullivan's, the Biden White House. But you answered that question. The Washington Post actually says that this offensive, according to the leaks in the Washington Post, will result in modest, modest yes. territorial gains. That is yes. that is an incredible admission from yes. the Washington Post. All of this is going to occur for modest territorial gains. And this is not the first time that we have had officials in the Biden White House, in the administration, the U.S. government, warn the Biden White House against certain actions. We go back to SWIFT. We go back to seizing the, the foreign assets where we know that there are warnings given to the Biden White House, don't do it. What did the Biden White House do? They ignored the warnings and they did it. And so my question to you is, the State Department, 
my belief is the State Department. They're the ones that are pushing for this yes. offensive. Blinken yes. and Newland. Jake Sullivan, yes. if you consider him part of the, the group that, that's pushing for, for this offensive. We now have indications that this offensive is, is not going to go well. Even the U.S. government is admitting it. Ukraine officials in this Washington Post article, they even say that they're going to probably have to go through with the offensive. They say it. We're going to probably have to go through with it, but they don't seem excited. excited. You know, they don't seem confident. That's the word that I'm looking for. It seems like they're being pushed into it. What options are there? Because there are people in the Biden White House who are saying this offensive will lead to, to the collapse of the Ukraine military. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. But on the, but the State Department's pushing for it. But yes. If they don't do the offensive, the option then is is what Alexander a, a, yes. a, a long yes. war. The, the U.S. Yeah. the collective West is not is not capable of a long war. They can't they can't do that either. They're unwilling yes. to negotiate. What are the options? Well, they're not letting Ukraine negotiate. I mean, I think this is the point to understand going all the way back to January. I mean, whenever the talk of negotiation starts, we see people like Newland and Blinken putting impossible conditions. Like, for example, Newland and Blinken a couple of weeks ago were talking about a demilitarization of, Ukraine, of Crimea by the Russians at one and the same time as the United States would supply endless weapons to Ukraine so that, you know, that would enable Ukraine to march into a demilitarized Crimea without opposition at a time of its choosing. And there was no conceivable way that the Russians would ever agree to a proposal on those kind of terms. So the hardliners, the State Department, those people are sabotaging any talk of negotiation. And can I just say, just, just before we discuss this. I think this all provides context to a recent article in The Hill, which I discussed in one of my videos on my channel by a man called Earl Mack, who is clearly a member of the, well, he was a former State Department official. He was ambassador to Finland. He's clearly very much on the part of the, on the side of the hardliners. And he was complaining that well, he was saying that he went to Kiev, he met all the officials there, and it was absolutely obvious to him that despite the fact that they were going through the motions of saying, yeah, we're going to win, this offensive is going to go well, all is you know, going well in the future, that they, have, that they lacked conviction. They didn't really believe it themselves. And his solution was to send weapons, more weapons, now, to Ukraine. He was talking about tanks, aircraft and he was actually saying in that article these weapons need to be sent today no discussion about where they're to come from how ukraine is going to train for them in time because clearly without these weapons the offensive is going to fail i mean that was the implication of this thing i mean it's a really i mean, really, I mean borderline irrational in my opinion i mean distressing and depressing. Anyway, what are the real options? Well, the first is Ukraine should call off this offensive. I mean, I think that when you get these kind of assessments, there's no sense in throwing men to that, in, into a battle, throwing away their lives 
in this kind of way. So that's a humane thing to say. The second is, from a military point of view, I mean, conserve your forces if you're going to send them into an attack where most of them are going to be destroyed. And that's going to leave you in an impossibly weak position where you can't continue the war and puts you in a position where you can't really negotiate. Well, that's not a good plan. Or so it seems to me, you know, I mean, I say this always, I'm not a military person, but that seems to me common sense. Conserve your forces. Don't launch an offensive like this. And the third thing you should do is negotiate, start negotiations. Now, the United States, it's clear, is incapable of doing that. It's incapable of arranging anything like that, nor is the EU. But China has very carefully positioned itself as a potential mediator. Maybe you could go through the Chinese. Erdogan is still there for the moment. He'd probably be prepared to do it too. Um, Belarus, I think, is now so firmly in, in the Russian camp that that's not really an option. But there are potential mechanisms to get negotiations going. And the right thing to do, the obvious thing to do, is for Ukraine to say to the hardliners in the US, to Sullivan, Blinken, all of those, look, this can't work, this won't work. If we're going to achieve modest gains... We're not going to break the land bridge, or if it's very difficult for us to break the land bridge, or if we do break the land bridge and lose all our army doing it, then let's not do it. Let's talk instead. You can't provide us with the weapons in time. You can't provide us with the training on the weapons in time. Let's just sit down and talk. And, you know, we understand you don't want us to do it, but we will, you know, we need to do it. The problem is... Ukraine itself is not united about this. Just a few days ago, Alexei Danilov, who is the head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, and an extreme hardliner, he actually came out and made a statement. He said, if Zelensky starts negotiations with the Russians, he is committing political suicide. And I said, when I saw that, that that looked as much a warning to Zelensky from the hardliners in Kiev as, you know, a, a, a statement of, you know, political fact, if you like. So Zelensky himself is, if he has any inclination to start negotiations, which I'm not even sure about that, but Zelensky himself is boxed in by the hardliners in Kiev. And it seems that the more level headed people in Washington are boxed in by the hardliners in Washington. This is a runaway train that's heading for the cliff and there's no one who can stop it. Yeah, even the, the Washington Post article, the very, very last paragraph, Alexander says, but opening talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin could be risky for Ukraine's leader, President Volodymyr Zelensky. As I said, well, you saw that, as I said, That's, Danilov, yeah. he's actually threatened him. I mean, when he talks about political suicide, what is that if not a threat of a coup? <laughs> I mean, that is what it is. And, you know, he is the head of the National Security and Defense Council. He is the kind of man who probably has the levers in Kiev to call out troops, security officials, SBU types, all those sort of people, organize another Maidan, who knows what. 
But that is clearly what it's all about. He's threatening Zelensky if you continue with, if you don't even think about negotiations. If you start negotiations, you're finished. And, you know, political suicide, well, it might even go further than that. So, uh, in a way, what has happened is that Ukraine's been led into a trap. It can't go back. It can only go forward. It can only go forward into the Russian defences and the Russian artillery and suffer the terrible consequences of what's, what, whatever's going to come. I mean, it, it, it's an extraordinary tragedy. Well, I say that. I suppose there's always an off chance. There's a chance. I mean, you know, I'm not a military man. There may be a chance that something unexpected could happen and that they'll achieve a breakthrough in some place or other. But clearly, these people who prepared all these reports don't believe that is going to happen. Earl Mack, when he met Ukrainian officials, he found that they didn't believe it either. And we see... There's no reason why we should believe it. Yeah. Uh, once again, going back to the to the Washington Post article, it says the United States is hopeful, hopeful that incremental gains, hopeful that incremental gains could at least threaten the free flow of Russian equipment and personnel in the corridor, in, in the land bridge. Hopeful. It's hope strategy. It's they're, a hope they, strategy, but... Yeah, yeah, they're depending on... Newland, the State Department is saying we have no... No options. We well, we're pushing you to do this, yeah. and the Ukraine administration, the Alexi, the, Ale, the Alensky administration, is saying we have no other options. So let's roll the dice and and hope. Let's hope and hope. Yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, hope. Bear in mind with the lives of men. But you see, you see, the point is this, and this we go back now to that Rand Corporation report. Let's say they achieve those incremental gains. And, you know, they, they do interfere with or even cut the land bridge. That's, if, if they burnt up most of their army doing it, why should the Russians negotiate? They can recover all this territory. They've got most of their reserves ready and still in place. They're now, you know, their aircraft is becoming increasingly active. They're now bombing places all over the place. They're in a much stronger position. So, you know, they can weather the storm of this offensive, whatever incremental gains it makes, and then come back. It's a hope strategy that isn't really based on any kind of realistic hope. It's based, again, on this extraordinary idea, which has governed US and Ukrainian strategy since the beginning of the war, that you somehow panic people in Moscow and create a crisis there, and that pushes Putin into negotiations or leads to his overthrow in some way. That, that, that's what it's all about, ultimately. It's not about the situation militarily on the ground. It's about generating some kind of crisis in Moscow. That's what they tried last autumn with the offensives in Kharkov and Kherson. It didn't work. That's what they tried before with the uh, um, shock and all sh sanctions that we've talked about so often. That didn't work. And this is the third attempt. Yeah. And, and the neocons, they know that they'll never get this close to, to overthrowing or to destroying Russia than they are with this whole conflict, this whole year-long conflict. I mean, this is as close as, as they've ever 
got into their to their goal of of removing Putin of regime change, and they know that this is never gonna gonna come around again. They understand that, so they can't. They're unwilling to 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 move back, and so they're just they're they're pushing the Alevsky regime to just go all in and give it one one last chance. I believe the Times even had an article that they ran yesterday saying, "Is this the last chance?" For the Ukraine military, something like that was the headline, and yeah, this is this is what the neocons are saying. We we got one last chance. Let's throw all these men, a hundred, a hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand, and let's hope that something happens because they can't pull back. They're not allowing the Olensky regime to to call off the offensive because if they call off the offensive, well then. The Alensky regime could be could be overthrown. Europe is going to pull all their support. The EU, the money's going to dry up. The weapons are going to dry up. They can't fight a long war. Even even the other day, there was an article saying that this whole plan to produce uh, ammunition by the EU is completely collapsed. It's, collapsed. it's completely collapsed. <laughs> yeah. So they can't fight a long war. Society, the society of, of the, the, the citizens of the U.S., of the EU, are tired of this war. They don't want anything to do with it. The media uh, persona, the, the identity of, uh, of Alensky has collapsed. It, yes. It's collapsed. Yes, and his popularity yeah, in Ukraine has collapsed. His popularity well, has collapsed. They, 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 they've boxed the entire yes. country in. Yes, well, this is what comes... If you allow your foreign policy to be taken over, not just for your foreign policy, your grand strategy, which I hate, an expression I hate, by the way, but it is often used in the United States. If you allow your foreign policy and your grand strategy to be captured by people who have no reverse gear, they have no reverse gear. They cannot, they cannot, they don't even have a break. <laughs> they, oh, yeah, when they run into an obstacle, their, their instinct is to ram harder down on the accelerator. <laughs> that, that's, what they, that, that's what they're doing. Because as you absolutely rightly say, they can't give up on their plans, they can't give up on their strategies. Because if they did, they wouldn't be neocons. <laughs> that's the thing to understand about these people. Ultimately, if they can't achieve this, if they can't break up Russia, especially now when Russia, you know, with the whole thing at the beginning was, you know, fragment Russia, take control of what's left, redirect it against China. Well, that strategy is falling apart. We see that China and Russia are coming closer, not further away from each other. They're not distancing themselves from each other. So given that that is so, well, what do you do if you are a neocon? You double down, you triple down, you quadruple down until you hope Possibly something might work, something might break. The Russians might break in some way. They might panic, they might lose their confidence, they might make, start making big mistakes. Doesn't look like the Russians are going to do any of those things. But if you're a neocon, that's the only thing you can do. Okay, so final question is, let's explore two possible off-ramps for, for Ukraine to preserve whatever's left of their country yes. and, and of, of their society. Mm. China. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible. Yes. We know that 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 Alensky is trying to, to to call Xi Jinping or get Xi Jinping to call him. 
I, I don't think the call is based on Alensky asking for China to help negotiating. I think the call is based on Alensky being pressured by DC to try and move China away from Russia, yes. unfortunately. Yes. But maybe, just maybe Xi Jinping can convince Alensky to allow China to mediate. In other words, kind of what they did to Macron and, and Ursula in a way, Alensky calls China to to try and get the Chinese to move away from Russia and the Chinese in their own way, they, they turn the tables around and they maybe try to, maybe they do convince Zelensky to ditch the neocons and negotiate for the sake of, of his people. Yeah. Very low possibility there, but maybe. What are your thoughts on that? And then the second option that I see, the second off-ramp, low possibility, but people are discussing it, which is Poland somehow getting involved and providing some sort of buffer zone, integration, federalization, I don't know, of the yes. west of Ukraine, which allows Zelensky to somehow and his whole team to somehow exit into this, this new entity or this existing entity, which is a part of Poland. And they, they continue from there. Maybe. I mean, people do say, they are saying, there are, these are rumors, they, do, they are saying that Alensky offered this to Poland during his visit. I can't confirm that, but there are rumors that Alensky said, look, Poland, come in, take a chunk out of the West and help us out. I don't know if that's true, but anyway, yes. it, it, it is a possibility for an exit out of this. Yes. So let's start with the first one, the Chinese mediation. I mean, the great problem it runs into is that whatever happens in Ukraine, whatever happens... You know, if there's a military defeat, if there's a military dis disaster, if the Russians are on the gates of the gates of Kiev again and look like they're going to take it over, if some people in Kiev want to do it, the United States, this administration, will be implacably opposed. The very last thing they want, the absolute last thing they want, is Ru uh, China brokering a peace in Eastern Europe. I mean, that is for the neocons. And not just the neocons, I'm sorry to say, a lot of other people who are not necessarily neocons. That is a strategic nightmare for the United States. They will work overtime to prevent it happening. And as we've discussed, it doesn't matter how bad the situation in Ukraine is. Unfortunately, they do have assets. They do have people in Kiev who will support them in this. So I, I, I think that the Chinese mediation idea is in many respects an attractive one. I think the Chinese are open to this if, as I said, Kiev comes to its senses. But I don't think it's going to happen because the US is going to prevent it. And, uh, and I think it has the means to prevent it. I think the United States, the neocons, rather than see something like that happen, would rather have Ukraine completely destroyed than have peace to Ukraine brought by China. I, you know, I, I'm afraid it is as simple and as terrible as that. Now, I'm going to say something about this Polish idea. I think that to the extent that the neocons have a plan B, what you are describing is their plan B. And I'm pretty sure there's been discussions about it between some neocons. Remember, a lot of neocons have very strong connections with Poland. Um, and Applebaum and Radek Sikorsky are particular, you know, uh, you know, power couple, if you like. But, you know, there's others. I think that this has been discussed 
by some people in the Polish government and some people in Washington. That foreign policy article which we were talking about the other day is a clear indication of this. So I think that this is a plan. <laughs> you know, if, if it all fails, if the Russians break through to the Dnieper, if they arrive, as I said, opposite uh, Dniepro, if they arrive opposite Kiev, you try and get basically a greater Poland taking in all of Ukraine all the way up to the Dnieper. It's a nightmare strategy. I mean, it is one of the most bizarre and uh, disastrous ideas I've ever come across. But it's exactly the kind of scheme that you can imagine the neocons with their complex chess games, they might actually hit on. And I'm afraid, I suspect there are some people in Poland, and there are even some people in Ukraine, who might even go that far and go down that particular route. It would be an absolute disaster. It would bring the Poles right up against the Russians. It would make Poland unmanageably large. It would convert Poland from a very homogeneous society into a society that is no longer homogeneous at all. And where there's been, you know, incorporating territories, it hasn't occupied since the 17th century with people who might not, you know, agree with or, or be happy to be with Poland at all. And I cannot imagine that it would be acceptable in the long term to Russia. So it would simply create further conflict, it would drag Poland into a conflict, into the Ukraine conflict. It would prolong the war in a disastrous way. And by bringing in Poland, it would bring the war ultimately into the heart of Europe. It's a crazy idea. It's absolutely misconceived. I think many, many, many people in Poland will oppose it. I think the Polish military, which has given away much of its best equipment, <laughs> would um, be horrified at the prospect of it. I think um, Germany, people in Germany, many people in Germany, most people in Germany, would be appalled at the idea that support for Ukraine has morphed into what many people in Germany would see as a gigantic Polish power grab, land grab. And I, you know, I, I could see this crazy plan creating so many problems going forward that it would undoubtedly trigger the eventual collapse of the Euro-Atlantic system, NATO, the European Union and all the rest, whilst doing Immeasurable, da immeasurable damage to Poland and what is left to Ukraine as well. But neocons never think in these terms. From their point of view, this is an obvious gambit. It looks good on paper. In their various position papers and planning groups, they probably see all sorts of attractions to it. And we saw that in the foreign policy article, which really doesn't explore the implications of it at all. No, note. I mean, we, we, you know, you've now, we've now both read lots of neocon papers. Foreign policy article is uh, an example. There was a crazy article about Iran, you know, assassinating or, you know, 
targeting Iranian leaders. None of these articles the neocons ever produced, none of these papers the neocons ever produced, ever look at the economics, the logistics, the larger diplomatic consequences. It's all an abstract chess game, which real life isn't like that. People aren't like that. Nations aren't like that. It, it doesn't happen in that way. Yes, you could have a situation, I think, still, where the Russians and the Ukrainians come to an agreement. There is an independent Polish state. It maintains good relations with Poland. Why not? Good relations with Russia. Why not? But that's not the scenario that the neocons want to see. Yeah. They don't think about any of these things. They don't think about how stuff like this will affect society and the stability no. of society and, and the no. quality of people's lives in Poland. They, they don't I mean, think about any of that stuff. No, no, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, as far as they're concerned, Poland is anti-Russian. It always has been. That's what they think. I mean, they always assume that conflicts and antagonisms will go on forever. So Russia will never make up with China. China will never make up with India. Iran and Saudi Arabia will never make peace with each other. Syria, the conflict, Sunnis and Shias there will go on fighting until the end of time. They always assume that. They always think they can manipulate these feelings and somehow inflame them, as they have managed to do to a great extent in Ukraine. But they never, never consider what is good and proper and responsible for the people of these countries. They never really ask themselves, is this good for Ukraine? Is this good for Poland? Bear in mind that in Poland today, there have been protests about Polish grain, Ukrainian grain going in. There have been protests about Pol uh, Ukrainian refugees. So you can already see some indicators of the kind of problems that will multiply a millionfold if you try and bring these two very different countries together. Yeah, boy. If only we could get negotiations, but like you said, they've ruled out negotiations as well. That's the only yeah. way forward. Yes, absolutely. And I agree. And, I, you know, there is still a... But it's ruled out. There is still a, it's ruled out, exactly. There's still a window for them. But they have been opposed to negotiations ever since the protests against Viktor Yanukovych began in 2013. I mean, they wouldn't accept even a minor changes to the EU association agreement, which was the original issue all those years back. You know, uh, um, they, not so much as a punctuation mark in that agreement would be, could be changed. We had Victoria Nuland handing, handing out cookies and saying, F the EU, because John McCain, we had S all Sikorsky. of these Sikorsky, exactly. Who was the foreign exactly. minister? Exactly. We had the sabotage of the Minsk agreement. We had the sabotage of the I I Istanbul proposals. And as I said, negotiations is something that they will not countenance. They will not give peace a chance. Yeah. And it's all about destroying Russia. That's all about destroying Russia. And, of course, if Ukraine is destroyed in the process, well, there we are. We'll end the video there, the Durant.locals.com. We are on 
Rumble, Rockfin, Odyssey, BitChute, and Telegram, and go to the Durant shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.